Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are talking to the author of the new book, Barkley, a biography. His name is Timothy Bella. And if you had questions about Charles Barkley, there's a good chance that I'm going to ask him, at least if you're listening to this podcast. Also, I got some choice words about what the detention of Brittany Griner says about politics in this country. And it ain't good. Also, I have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down awards and more. But first, let's go to Timothy Bella. Congratulations on the book, first and foremost. Uh, it's being Thank called you. a definitive biography of Barclay. So in your mind, what, what classifies a biography as definitive? For me, Dave, it's all about going back to who and what made Charles Wade Barkley into the guy we've seen every week on our television sets, either as a player or as a broadcaster for over four decades now. And for me, it was all about going back to his hometown in Leeds, Alabama, just outside Birmingham and understanding how this short fat kid who was raised by a single mom and his grandma, uh, after his father left when he, he was only 13 months old, um, at a time when uh, segregation in the schools was really tough in the M. Crow South, how that kid became Charles Barkley. And honestly, Dave, his life could have gone in so many different directions. But for me, it was all about going back to Leeds, Auburn, Philadelphia, Phoenix, Houston, and understanding, sure, we hear these sound bites from Chuck every week, but how did he actually get here? And I felt now was really the right time for him because he's got such a big American story, Dave. Mm. You know, Charles Barkley is, is almost – perhaps the only person in our culture who's always been able to pretty much say whatever he thinks and not have it slow down his career a bit or pay a price as so many have to pay prices when they uh, would step out of what the perceived bounds are thought to be. How has Barkley been able to get away with this? How does he do it? It's a great question because he really has become Teflon in a lot of ways and uh, almost has become America's crazy uncle in that he will say and do these things that would cancel or just really hurt anybody else except Charles Barkley. So <laughs> I do think it really comes back to just having these four decades in which we have heard and seen him uh, go through all of this. I mean, we saw him as a young man in Auburn in Phoenix uh, when he would get into these fights on the court, get into these bar fights off the court, accidentally spin on the little girl. And then as he got older, getting into more bar fights and being played to Adana off the court and uh, on driving. I mean, there are so many things that have happened to him, but 
I do think one of the things that has uh, sh uh, actually shielded him in some ways is that what when he says something and when he apologizes for something, there is a sense of accountability there, and there is a sense that he's most of the stuff he says comes from this place of love instead of hate. Uh, now, it's, there are things that he just is going to screw up and there's no walking that back. But I do feel like for a lot of people, there is this trust in the relationship that people think they have to Charles Barkley and uh, understanding that he's gonna screw up a lot of times, he's gonna say things that are flat out wrong and do things that are totally wrong, but um, he's not doing it in a hurtful or a hateful mm -hmm. way. He always wants to start what he calls a conversation, and he always does that, it seems. Mm. What's your first memory of Charles Barkley, or at least the first time you were transfixed by Charles Barkley? My first memory, so I grew up watching him. I, uh, I I'm a 90s kid, so I've got a very different experience than someone of his age. Of uh, So for me, it was probably his role model ad in 93 with Nike, in which uh, during his finest year as a player, he puts out this ad for Nike, basically saying uh, to all of the kids and everyone, on out there, I am not your role model. Your parents are role models. I'm just an athlete who who shoots a ball. You look toward your family. And for me, I didn't really understand why he was actually saying it at the time. Honestly, just being a kid, seven, eight years old, I'm, I'm like, but I like you. I I I I think you're an incredible player so why should i not look up to you but as i got older i understood what he was actually trying to do put that ad and i do think it is the thing he's most proud of um in terms of all of the ad he's ever done but for me that was my first exposure to him uh that ad and obviously the 93 finals Mm -hmm. against Jordan. You know, Charles Barkley's politics have always been a mystery to me. Like I've written whole articles, like just trying to analyze and figure out where exactly he lands on the political spectrum. Uh, Cause it's always very slippery. Uh, how would you describe the politics of Charles Barkley? I would describe the politics of Charles Barkley at least early Charles Barkley into the 90s has been that of Alabama and of the South. He was very right-leaning. I mean, this is someone who was friends with Clarence Thomas and Hush Limbaugh and uh, uh, supported John McCain, supported Joe Arpaio in Arizona. I mean, you had someone who was not afraid to uh, support uh, uh, conservative Republicans, uh, some of whom really 
inflammatory at that point in time. I, I do think it started to shift when he uh, supported Bill Clinton and during uh, his presidency. I think the, the real shift happened uh, during the presidency of George W. Bush. And it was around 2006, 2007, where Charles officially said, uh, I know I'd left the Republican Party because they're all idiots like Bush, essentially. And ever since then, he has really embraced Barack Obama, has embraced uh, liberal Democrats. Um, uh, he was very supportive in the uh, campaign for Doug Jones in Alabama, uh, in defeating Roy Moore. And uh, he was very critical of Donald Trump during his presidency as well. So I do think he is more left of center now, but his evolution um, in terms of politics is a wild one, especially considering he had once uh, floated the idea of putting for governor in Alabama. Uh, so it's, it's a wild story, Dave. Yeah, I can't wait to... To, to really crack into that part of it. Because I, I, I remember that very clearly, the whole Barkley is Alabama governor, uh, Republican Alabama governor. Yeah, and and, and I interviewed Vice President Dan Quayle for this book, and he said it was a real thing. He really wanted him to run in Alabama because they uh, had been polling out there that uh, uh, indicated that if Charles ran, he would have probably won in Alabama. That's how popular he was then and still is now. Um, his drunk driving incident kind of ended that, but it was a real thing. Um, so here's one of my takes on Barclay's politics, and you can say if you disagree or agree with it, or if you, but if you agree, please try to help me understand it. Um, I find him to be incredibly uh, giving and empathetic around LGBTQ issues, including standing up explicitly for trans kids, uh, immigrants, the poor, uh, speaks with this great empathy. But when it came to the Black Lives Matter movement, he was in the moment of like Ferguson, so unforgiving towards the protesters themselves. And I guess, why does he not, why does he to me seem to have, I don't want to call it an empathy deficit, but just a seemingly just entirely different political approach to anti-racist struggle as opposed to these other spheres. I think it's definitely fair to say that when it comes to the Tech Lives Matter movement or anything regarding uh, police brutality of Black people in this country, he's going to say some things that you are just not going to expect uh, that, that can be really inflammatory. Uh, you, you are right that he does support these other causes, but when it came to the trial of uh, George Zimmerman and the trial of the cops in NYC who killed 
Eric Gardner, um, he he said he agreed with both of those decisions, uh, and that raised a lot of eyebrows. And then yes, when Ferguson came up, uh, just calling the rioters thugs and just uh, saying that they were uh, really a poor excuse for black people in that moment. If that hurt and shredded a lot of people, especially people who saw Charles as someone who does show a ton of empathy uh, for a lot of people, but it does go back to his upbringing in Pete's Alabama and this respect he's long had for law enforcement. I mean, that carried over in his time in Phoenix and Houston and uh, has only been amplified since then. So when he said those things, it, it really to expose this blind spot, I think he has, or, or he's had in, in that moment in regard to this movement and these tragedies that keep happening in cities across this country. And uh, Kitty Smith called him out for those comments. He, he kept asking, why do people keep turning to Charles Barkley when these awful things happen? And it's a valid question. And I think the answer is he's going to keep answering them. And if people want to know his opinion, even if it's not the one they agree with. So when it comes to if these matters, I do think occasionally it does show where he's from and the time period he came from and the values he still holds in respecting law enforcement, even when this landscape has totally changed now. Mm. He really is so unique. How would you answer the question, what makes Barkley Barkley? I would say just his honesty and the fact that he has no filter, honestly. I mean, it keeps coming up over and over again, but the way he he went on air and talked about how his good friend, Michael Jordan was a terrible owner and was doing bad things with his team in Charlotte and how those comments ended his friendship with Jordan. I mean, it goes to show you if not for, if he can't be honest with people on air, then he's not being honest with himself. And I do think that's kind of one of his greatest strengths and his greatest weaknesses too. Um, and they're still talking about how those comments he made about Jordan ended on the best NBA friendships from the 1990s. And this happened years ago too. So mm-hmm. I, I, I do think people appreciate the honesty, but they also see that it can be one of his greatest downfalls too. So I I do think he is special just because he doesn't hold anything back, Dave. 
even when he, you know, it feels like he's wrong. Hmm. Yeah. True. The true enough that, you know, Tim, it's been so great to have you on the show. One thing we always ask people on the show is what the soundtrack is to their work, to their passion, to what they're doing. So, Tim, what was your soundtrack? What music were you listening to as you were penning uh, this definitive biography of Charles Barkley? Oh, man, it was a combination of things. So I was writing this um, and thought of it was written in the summer of 2020, uh, which is, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So around that time, uh, uh, Spotify had... uh, playlist from uh the last dance which was great i just plowed through all of that it just a bunch of public enemy uh forest big a little bit of bruce springsteen i'm big on springsteen it will was definitely a mix but um i would write these chapters deep into a night and into early morning so if if I needed a boost. I, I went to Public Enemy, went to Biggie, went to Prince Bowie. Um, and if I need, needed something of a come down, a little bit of Springsteen, a little bit of Pink Floyd. So um, it was definitely a mix, but uh, the, the soundtrack is something I still hang on to, though, especially at like 5 a.m., just uh, hand me out to Chuck D. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, Tim, thank you so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you so much, Dave. Happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to you, too. We'll be back right after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, I am deeply disturbed by the response to my recent column about what we know about the abhorrent prison conditions that Brittany Griner is enduring in a labor camp in Mordovia, Russia. While the article garnered attention to her plight, there were two trends on the right and among those supposedly on the left that speak to how toxic and enraging our political world has become. Part of the problem is my own naivete in thinking that the idea of an Olympian in a penal colony for nine years just might create unity across the political spectrum. Now there are points of unity, all right, but nothing like what I expected. The rights response has made clear to me that racism, sexism, and homophobia have become the new patriotism. I was bombarded with messages that praised Russia and Vladimir Putin for having these tough-on-drugs laws, as if Griner's nine-year imprisonment doesn't have far more to do with hostage diplomacy and Russia's war on Ukraine than with a vape cartridge. 
I was repeatedly told that because Griner used to take a knee during the national anthem, she is somehow not worthy of our support and our care, that she hates America so she couldn't count on America to fight for her freedom. And then the barrage of racism, sexism, and homophobia was more than I have received for any article in years of doing this work. It's been staggering, but this is their patriotism, the freedom to hate others and mock others' agony. There is also, and we underestimate how widespread, a cult of Putin on the right, where they venerate his perceived masculinity, his anti-gay laws, and his control. They see him as the icon of a global authoritarian movement, and they would sooner chew glass than criticize him in the name of a black queer woman. And what a condemnation of the Republican Party, that they would sooner earn points with Nazis than be part of calling for the freedom of not just Greiner, but also Paul Whelan, another American in a Russian jail. Shame on me for thinking in this period of fascistic right-wing confidence that the response would be anything else. But the response that has been even more jarring is from people putatively on the left. It doesn't feel right to even say that they're on the left. They're more like smug shit posters with a repellent left-wing moralism. These are people who think that any call for Griner's freedom is really about demonizing Russia and that any demonization of Putin only benefits U.S. imperial and NATO imperial aims. Here is Putin, the Valentine of the Nazi right, and we have people who claim to be on the left who are de facto offering support for Griner's nine-year labor camp imprisonment. Then there are the people who say that the people calling for Griner's freedom are at best ignorant of how terrible prison and drug laws are in the United States, or, or at worst are providing cover for the war on drugs here at home. Forget for a moment that Griner's plight could actually help build an international movement for prison abolition and eradication of the drug war. Their argument seems to be that by calling for Griner's freedom, we are giving prison conditions in the United States a pass. They say, now do Alabama, as if we aren't. They say, now do our drug laws, as if we do not. It's incredibly insulting, especially to the WNBA players who did so much in 2020 to raise public awareness about racial inequity and police violence. They have gone from social justice heroes to dupes just for calling for their friends' freedom. Meanwhile, as these awful politics thrash around Griner like she's some kind of culture war pinata, we still have Sherelle Griner, Brittany's wife, in pain over Brittany's endless imprisonment. We have Sherelle relaying Brittany's fear that she will be forgotten. Brittany Griner must remain in our thoughts, but how she is remembered matters as well. There is no politics more basic than solidarity with the imprisoned. There is no politics more obvious than solidarity with someone in conditions of 16-hour workdays, beatings, and torture, and an environment notoriously racist and homophobic. If we can't get this right, then God help us. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. 
Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week, Stand up. I guess, goes to the guy who ran out on the pitch in the World Cup with every conceivable slogan uh, on his shirts and like front and back and um and he was waving a big rainbow flag and it was that was kind of cool uh, as an effect i i do wish that you know his targets weren't just qatar iran and uh i forget i think qatar again um but it's like that i just wish he'd had targets in the west as well because anybody who knows the World Cups that have occurred in the West knows that there's a lot of blood and dirt on those hands as well. So sort of a just stand up to that guy. That took a lot of guts. You know, big ups to you on that front. Got to work on your messaging there, buddy. Uh, the just sit your ass down award. Sit your ass down. I mean, how can it not go to Jerry Jones? Jerry. Big Jerry. Jerry World. Dallas Cowboys. Jerry. Turns out there Jerry is, you know, looking just like he does now. That's one of the, the 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 deficits of getting too much plastic surgery when you get older. It's like your face is still as it was when you were a teenager. So, you know, otherwise maybe he could have pled that it wasn't him. But there he is as a teenager uh, being part of effectively a white mob uh, trying to keep black children from going to school in Arkansas. There he is right there amongst the mob and you know Michael Harriet did a tremendous thread about this um, on Twitter about the history of what happened in Arkansas and why Jerry Jones should never say his hands are clean of this and so people should read Michael Harriet on that the thing that I would just like to put my little edge of sports uh, input in is that you would really have to be uh, willingly willingly blind to not see the continuity between Jerry Jones being there that day and his treatment of black athletes, his treatment of athletes who wanted to kneel, uh, his treatment of athletes who attempted to assert themselves uh, politically, intellectually. Uh, Jerry Jones has been, to call it paternalistic, is actually kind. Uh, And I, I just find it to be really striking the political and social continuity of old south to new south as contained in one jerry jones well that's all the time we have for this week's show thank you so much tim bella the book is called barkley Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Thank you to all of you who listen to the Edge of Sports podcast. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>